Hi, this is Ibarian X, and welcome to another episode of The Candid Frame. This episode of The Candid Frame is brought to you by Squarespace, the beautiful and intuitive website publishing platform that allows anyone to easily create professional web pages, blogs, online stores, and galleries on a single platform. For a free trial and 10% off your first purchase on new accounts, go to squarespace.com forward slash candid frame and use the offer code candid frame five. When it comes to photography, we as photographers spend a lot of time on things like trying to learn Photoshop or some lighting technique or or reading countless reviews online of the latest camera or, or lens. But not a whole lot is spent on just the business of photography. And I know that a lot of people see business as a four-letter word, but whether you're aspiring to become a full-time or a part-time photographer, a editorial commercial photographer, or just someone who wants to sell their prints on, on occasion, Understanding the business of photography is really an important thing to learn because you don't want to undervalue your work. Think about how much money and how much time you spend trying to become good as a photographer. That time has a value and it's worth something. And so it's important to be able to translate and communicate that value to others. And that's part of the business of photography. It's not just about establishing a price point. Today's guest, Corwin Hebert, knows a lot about that. And he's not a a photographer, but he's a manager for a photographer. And he's worked with other creatives in terms of helping them understand the value of knowing the business side of being a creative artist. And in his books, Living the Dream, Putting Your Creative Life to Work and Getting Paid, and Growing the Vision Monger, he shares a lot of insights that he's had over the years that's become invaluable to not only the photographers and creative people that he's worked with, but Also, in terms of what he does, in terms of helping these people reach their goals. So, regardless of where you are in your photographic journey, I hope that you take away a lot from this conversation with Corin Hebert. It's Corwin. Hey, Corwin, how are you? Good, how are you? I'm good, good. So, thanks for sending me a copy of the uh, the e-book. Yeah, so I can't. Did, oh, no, I send you, did I send you a copy of Living the Dream and Growing the Vision Monger? Is that what I sent you? I Living the Dream is the one that you sent me. Okay, yeah. So that was the PDF, you know, the the publisher's output um, to me with instructions not to give it away, and of course, you know, to a select few, of, you know, quick to pass it out. But well, um, that, that was the book here. that uh, Peach Pit um, put out at uh, Christmas time. Oh, okay, very cool. Well, it's going to be an interesting point of discussion because it's something that's always on my mind, being. Uh, you know, a sole proprietor. It's, just, it's something that never, never leaves my thought process. But no, know. I know it's you live it and breathe it, right? Yeah, yeah, and I, and I know a lot of people are curious about it. We had recently had a, a conversation that revolved around the business of photography, and it resonated with a lot of people. So, mm. um, I think this conversation is gonna gonna be a good one. Great. So I'm glad glad to help. Hopefully, it's uh, useful to you. Yeah, I, I want to start off by being a little bit of an instigator. Mm. Um, so I hope you don't mind, but, um, you know, I have about seven different books on the business of photography Mm -hmm. and why another one? That's a great question. Um, well, my first response to that is, um, how many of those business books are written by photographers? That's a question for you. Uh, probably I think three or four of them. And the others are written by Uh, what kind of people? Uh, probably business people for the most part. Yeah. And, you know, one of the aspects that, uh, you know, I live and breathe the business of creative work and photography a lot based on the clients I have. And um, I'm, you know, from the last, feels like for the last three, four years, you know, as everyone's so quickly jumping into, you know, freelance work and, and sole proprietorship and people are, you know, kind of scrambling around, kind of going, I want to make money at this. I like what I do. And they're turning to the the voices that they feel they should trust. Usually they're photographers that they look up to. And uh, sometimes I feel like 
those photographers, uh, you know, and there's a lot of photographers out there that are successful in business, but it's not necessarily because they have good business practices or because they actually know how they got to where they are now. So I felt like from a manager's perspective, from someone who spends time marketing photographers, I kind of felt like, you know, I have some things to, to throw into the ring here. And, uh, and so it, I kind of approached it from, if you want to learn about photography, you know, talk to a photographer, you want to learn about business, then find those business voices and those marketing voices that are out there that can sort of help bridge the gap. Because also, too, when photographers learn from photographers, they end up replicating what other people have done and their industry, their markets have seen it, been there, done that. And we often need to create a little bit more curiosity by um, having other inputs and other sources. And I think creative people as a broader scope can learn from one another. So I kind of wanted to bring that to the table. Yeah. And one of the things that I liked that you brought up in the book was priority on, on self-assessment, mm. you know, really taking a look in terms of what you love to do, what you like to do, and more importantly, what you don't like to do. Because mm-hmm. uh, when you first start off doing, uh, starting your own business as a photographer, there's so much stuff that you have to do that just, you know, personally, I, I hate to do, that I hated to do, that I still hate to do, but I'm the only one in this office. So mm-hmm. I have to sort of take responsibility for that. And I thought you you made some interesting points in terms of recognizing those things that you are, not only that you're good at, but that you like to do, but being aware of those things that, you know, you, you have less than an affinity for. Totally. And, you know, for those things that, you know, creative person really loathes doing, you know, let's use bookkeeping is probably the best example. Just because you have to wear a bookkeeping hat in your, you know, your sole proprietorship, why is it that you have to do it so horribly? <laughs> you know, maybe there's some a bit of information or some coaching or training, or, or if you were to sit down with a bookkeeping, you know, person say, hey, can I pay for two hours of your time just to help me get on the right track? And then you just sort of um, fill in the boxes if need be. Finding small solutions to what can be really large problems is usually a great way to go. And otherwise, everyone just kind of thinks, well, I have to wear all the hats. I better do all those things. And sometimes it gets done wrong. And that can be such a pain. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Take it from someone who knows. Yeah, and tax season just ended, right? So everyone's everyone's still twitchy or still twitching when it comes to taxes. Well, one of the things I've been thinking about recently, because a lot of people, you know, talk to me about, oh, how do I go pro? What do I need to do? Yeah. And, you know, I I don't think that everyone is really meant to go into business for themselves. You know, what what I'm trying to share with people that is it's okay that you can still have a creative life and not necessarily have to become a business owner. And because there's some examples of photographers out there who had full-time jobs throughout their life, but in, produced an incredible body of work during the, during their lifetime. Yeah. So I think that part of that self-assessment is trying to figure out exactly what it is you want and what you're willing to to do. So w- w- with that in mind, you know, w- when you think of the person who who really should make a go of it, are there certain things that you think that they need, they need to seriously think of and and have an honest answer to before making the leap? Because I think a lot of people make the leap without considering that. And then, then they fail and then they feel like they, that there's something wrong with the choice that they made or that they just aren't talented or skilled enough to be able to pull it off. Mm -hmm. Well, the going pro um, or turning pro, you know, sort of um, catchphrase, it's stuck in photographers' minds in a way that as an observer, outside observer, I actually find really interesting. For example, Graphic designers do not say, I want to go pro the way a photographer does. A graphic designer, you know, buys the expensive equipment and the software and kind of designs on the side, kind of helps some friends, does a little bit of work. As they build up their repertoire, they build up their portfolios, they build better connections. They tend to sort of slide into it with a lot more, you know, it's, I'm not saying it's smoother. I'm just saying that their expectations are a little bit more realistic. Photographers tend to, as their emerging and sometimes immature photographer tends to sort of go, okay, well, I've got a camera. I've been shooting for six months or a year. I, I want to go pro this. I love doing this. And here's the kicker is that when a creative person says, I love to do this work, I want to do it more, they equate more with full-time work. And the, the problem is, is that you can't enter the marketplace asking of yourself, hey, I just want to do this more. You enter the marketplace and you have to say, who do I want to serve and what am I going to offer them and how much am I going to ask for it? 
And what are my terms and conditions? And you have to ask business questions. And most people ask themselves a creative question when they try to go pro. So they're approaching it from the wrong perspective. Yeah, Don't you think a lot of that has to do with sort of the insecurity that a lot of photographers have in terms of wondering whether they're good enough yet? And that even when they sort of make the choice and they start putting their shingle out, announcing that they're a photographer, that that sort of pervades and sort of kind of poisons all of their thinking in terms of their own value as a, as a commodity as, and as a service? Yeah, I, I think that it seems from my perspective that a lot of photographers feel like um, their work is good enough and that it will speak for itself. And the reality is, is that, you know, a picture is not worth a thousand words in the marketplace. And especially to someone that is new as a service provider, there needs to be more told. People need to get to know and trust them. And that engage, that's not a look at my photographs um, effort. That is a get to know me, get to trust me, see how I can help you. Let me prove to you how I can help you. And it, it's a much more service-oriented effort. And so when it's, the focus is about the, the, you know, making good photographs, you know, that is one part of the equation. But it's not necessarily the, the initial business you know, part of the equation, which is coming down to you know, that target market and that offering set that often people just kind of go, have camera, we'll shoot. Yeah, the marketplace isn't looking for that. And even though there's an abundance of people offering just that. Oh, yeah, there's lots of people. I was talking to someone the other day who said to me that he really needed to make some money. So he figured, well, I'm going to start shooting weddings because clearly there's money in weddings. And I asked him one question about weddings. And he goes, actually, I hate weddings. Okay, then, then you might not want to add that to your business because that means you're marketing a liability. You're marketing the fact that you're willing to do that work, but you actually hate it. And it didn't take much to get that out of you. So, you know, the, everyone chasing the dollar is, um, is a huge detriment. You know, people uh, like to talk about, you know, building one's brand. But are they, <laughs> if they're serious about building it, then that means they have to take the bit of the slow road to get that done. That's why I agree with you. You know, there's nothing wrong with the day job. There's nothing wor- wrong with working on the side as best you're able because your brand is built off your experience, your quality, and your character. And those things don't just happen because suddenly you want to, you know, you want to do it. Yeah. I think one of the things that I often observe is that people want to take the, the path of least resistance. And by that, I mean, is they've seen a path that's been followed by another photographer and they feel, okay, that's what I need to do in order to be successful. And sometimes that involves them doing doing work or marketing themselves in ways that really don't tap into what makes them unique as a photographer. And I think a lot of that is born out of the fact that if you're creating a particular body of work and you're not seeing that regularly on the marketplace, you begin to question, well, who would pay me to Hmm. produce the kind of images that I really like to make? So if I want to make a go of it and I want to create more of this work, I'm going to have to go out there and follow the path that all these other guys have done you know, in terms of them making money in order for me to eventually have the opportunity to create the images that I want to create. For sure. I mean, you know, people that work in sort of a, I'll use the word commercial photography as a large catchphrase to say that, you know, when a marketing person or an agency, you know, person would come to them, you know, they'll say, they'll often bring something that's, um, uh, you know, like, we want you to replicate this look. And so, and, and emerging photographers know that, that down the road that they might get asked to to create a certain look, you know, the Gatorade look or the Vogue look or the whatever it is. And so they're, they want to replicate those things and fill their portfolios with things that look stunning and they've, they've been able to pull off that look. The problem is that, and you addressed it, that if it's not an aesthetic and a style and a, if it's something that really represents their unique take on a subject, on a situation, on an environment, then they're not actually able to deliver that as an ongoing service. It means they either got lucky or they kind of, they, they pulled it off in some way uh, that, you know, is it, does it really reflect who they are as an artist? Because that's the long game. You know, you can, I've seen photographers have a couple of really great shoots, uh, you know, and a year later they're working at Starbucks because they had great shoots, but, you know, <laughs> they, they weren't able to replicate it. They weren't able to make it financially viable. They obviously ate some costs there to, to pull that off and they weren't able to build off it in a tangible way. So the person that does freelance on the side kind of builds up slowly around their unique brand. Uh, and, and in fact, what they're doing is 
is they're making people curious. And over time, curiosity generates its own demand. And when you're able to do that, you can actually build a business. So no, it's not the, the quick leap over the chasm, which a lot of people feel like turning pro is. Uh, it's kind of a, it's a long game and people have to be prepared for that. So you've had the opportunity to work with a variety of different creative people. So when you, when you think about the ones that are not necessarily the most talented, but that ha- they brought other strengths to the table besides their artistic, you know, the creativity, is there anything that you can point to that you feel like, you know, this is why these people are able to, to succeed and thrive in what they're doing beyond just being talented? Yeah, the the successful creatives that I've observed or that I've worked with, they have a particular knack when it comes to uh, networking and you know that that human engagement, that social interaction, is treating their clients professionally, but yet as friends, being able to ask questions about other ways that they can help. You know, they just don't hand off a, a DVD full of images or send a Dropbox link. They you know, they meet the, per- the client with a follow-up. They not only hand off what was asked of them, but they find ways to ask, you know, is there anything else I can do for you? And, or, hey, I had this other idea. I know we just finished this project, but, but what about, you know, what about this idea? And they consider themselves a contributor, a stakeholder to, to the buyer's, um, you know, life or projects or, or whatever it is that they're doing. So there, there is definitely a certain amount of a, that sounds a little bit like a sales um, ammo about them. So, the, you know, the talented ones, you know, they can, of course, they can have lots of success, but the, the creators that spend a little extra time, you know, getting comfortable with handing out a business card uh, to someone that they're engaged with, or that they find ways to sort of get themselves out to coffee meetings and, you know, taking clients out for lunch, and they're more engaged in that human process that, you know, opportunities come to those that are uh, out in the real world. And the successful ones, seem to be really good at just making friends and asking questions. So some people who are creative don't feel like they have the, the gift of gab. They feel awkward. They feel uncomfortable doing the very things that you just described. So is it completely impossible that such a person can become an entrepreneur or do you believe that it's something that they can learn if they make the effort to sort of practice it and get past whatever anxiety or fear that they have? Yeah, I think the entrepreneurial spirit looks a lot of different ways. And it's not just the salesman, you know, it's not just the, the marketing person that can uh, fly in and make all the deals. You know, the, the, the creative that is um, a little bit more, you know, isn't as comfortable in that kind of situation or with, you know, striking up commerce. And, you know, and to be honest, I don't know really any really talented creatives that can strike up conversations with, you know, perfect strangers. No one can do that. That's really hard. So, but when it comes to that growing someone's network and just kind of reaching out to a friend of a friend and, and sort of wearing that, that sort of entrepreneurial hat, I believe it can look a lot of different ways, but I think that in the end, one has to at least make attempts that they're uncomfortable with. And they have to, I was talking with a, um, a web developer, a Drupal expert, actually a really high demand, but um, had a hard time with some of the business stuff just because that, you know, what they want to do is sit in their dark, you know, basement with their headphones on, listening to heavy metal and, you know, coding really cool Drupal products. And, you know, that makes them successful because they're good at what they do. But it means that can they turn that demand into actual revenue? Well, that takes getting out of the basement. That takes, you know, coffee meetings and, and, and picking up the phone and kind of sitting in a boardroom with a client, listening to their concerns and asking questions. And, and that takes that takes practice. So, Yes, I think that there's definitely some work can be done when it comes to practice, but everyone kind of has to roll with their personalities the way it is. But I will say that if that entrepreneurial engagement, that that more social, that more sort of sales-oriented approach isn't there, it will make it more difficult to build a, a sustained business over a lot of years. It just the reality is, is that buyers are inundated with lots of opportunities. There's lots of creative people meeting those needs, meeting their needs. And I, I believe that you kind of have to, you know, keep, you have to keep pushing in that, in that sort of, I don't mean push as in like, you know, I don't really mean pushing. I just mean they got to stay on top of uh, the people that they're working with and, and be able to reach out when even it's not the most comfortable thing to do. So it does take a little bit of effort for sure. Yeah. One of the things I, I see is people ask sort of a singular question. 
He's like, how much do I charge? How do I get uh, my first client? How do I, you know, get my work in front of a, an editor? And one of the things that you, you stressed in the book was the whole idea in terms of not being so myopic and having sort of a, a plan that gives you a, a grand perspective of not only what your ultimate goal is, but also the intermediate steps that, that get you there. And it seems like that, that creatives have a real clear understanding of that when it comes to creating work, but they don't automatically translate it to sort of the business end, even though it's, even though they're systematically, they're doing the very same thing when they're creating a, a singular or a body of work. Talk about the importance of that. And why do you think that that gap exists between applying that skill that a lot of these people have, that a lot of these people have into the business end of things? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think the, it's so common for uh, an emerging or a growing creative to sort of feel like the next thing they need is to build a business plan. If they, if they haven't had one or they've maybe built a, a, something in the beginning, but they really want to build an elaborate business plan. And so what that feels like is this giant business project, this giant deliverable, this unbelievably complex thing that they got to build this business plan. And I actually steer a lot of creatives away from building traditional business plans. You know, the, the breakdown, the executive summaries, the, you know, assessment of all the, you know, target market and pricing and financial models and graphs and charts and, you know, all those kind of things. I mean, they have their, they have value for sure, but a, a traditional business plan is helpful when you're looking for stakeholders or investors, um, you know, from the bank and they're associated with good financial reporting and a bunch of other aspects. To be honest, most creatives, what they need uh, is something that I like to call a, a business action plan. And that's just something a little simpler, a little bit more tangible, something that focuses you on one or two elements of, for example, like when I, I said, the, I used the phrase, like, who do you want to serve? So I think a good business action plan says, who's my target market? And then I'm going to ask myself two questions about the industry and the geographic location and the preferences of the people that I feel like my work, my creativity, my personality, and my interests connect with. So flush that out a little bit, come up with a few things that over the next three to six months that you can get done, and then move on to pricing. And then you kind of chip away at, you know, what could be a giant plan. To be honest, those giant plans usually take a really long time to build. And by the time they're done, they're either out of date or you have no interest in servicing or updating or maintaining it, and it goes in a drawer, and so what? So I'm a big fan of sort of a rolling, an ongoing business action plan that once a week, once every two weeks, you look at something and go, you know what, that, that, that thing around pricing, I'm going to sort this out, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come up with a couple different pricing ideas, and I'm going to run it by a couple people, and I'm going to like establish my price, and I'm going to try that price for three months, and I'm not going to budge off that price. And here's why. And you kind of build up your, you know, your approach to solving that one question. Because you're right, people ask that, well, how do I get more clients? Well, when I'm asked that question, I have, you have to answer 40 questions for me to answer that one, uh, because I wouldn't be able to answer it with just, you know, how do I get more clients? Well, <laughs> there's a few variables there, my friend. So yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting. And I, I like to see creatives break things down into smaller bite-sized pieces and come up with plans that they've come up with themselves, not a template that someone else gives them, and that they actually can chip away at you know small bits here and there. And I think an important part of that is you need to know how much money you need to make in order to sustain a business. And I think when people first start out, they 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 think about pricing as like how much can I afford to charge a person and not lose them as a potential client. Oh yeah, a, a lot of a lot of uh, photographers, for example, will say, "Well, you know, my my uh, you know my work is worth twenty five hundred dollars a day," and of course that's a rate that some photographers charge. But those photographers know exactly uh, why and how that pricing exists, and they can stand behind it, and they have justifications for that price. And if you don't have those, and that price is harder to ask, as well as I mean. In, in, in so many ways, the market dictates what it wants to spend, and you can set your price at whatever you want. If no one's giving you that money, then that's not a good price for you. So uh, I like to see, um, just like how a fine artist would 
you know, they put their work on a, they, they paint a canvas or they frame something, they put it on the wall and, uh, and it gets sold. Okay. And the next time they do something, maybe they, it's incremental. It, uh, fine artists sort of grow their pricing over time. Photographers need to do the same thing. So you charge a price that you can stand behind. And when you charge a price, when a photographer charges a price for their work, and they feel like their the client the prospect is kind of kind of negotiate that number down, or there feels like there needs to be some sort of discount, or if someone gets asked for a discount, it, it's the terms and conditions that need to change. And if uh, so, if the price goes down, something needs to go in your favor. So often, someone will say, "Well, my price is two thousand dollars." Oh, well, our budget's not that big. Oh, okay, well, how's fifteen hundred? Oh, fifteen hundred sounds great. And that loss of $500 came at no change to, to your business. And a photographer then just takes a hit. Instead, it should be, well, I can discount the price if we can add a few days onto the, the work project because then I can fit in some, some other stuff. Or instead of three final images, I'm going to give you one or two. Or whatever it is, change things. It's not just about that number. It's often about the other aspects that go into the pricing. So it's... Uh, it's, it, it can be complicated, but I'm always surprised that when someone just sits down and starts hammering it out, get a pen, get a paper, open a Microsoft Word document, whatever it is, and start asking questions about one's pricing, and the answers can start to, to um, fill in for sure. And now I'd like to take the time to thank our sponsor, Squarespace. Now, part of having a website today is about the ability to be able to get eyes onto that page. Because if you just have a website and no one's seeing it, it really isn't serving its purpose. And in today's world, social networking plays an important role in being able to create awareness of your work in the world. I know for me, it's particularly important being able to use Facebook and Google Plus and Twitter to be able to get people to know that I'm here and that I have something to share. And Squarespace gives you better social media integration so you can do just that. You can automatically import, sync, and publish to and from social media with just a few clicks, dynamically refreshing your site content and, and raising awareness in your social circles. For example, you can automatically pull photos from Instagram into your site, instantly sync pages and galleries to Facebook, auto-publish new blog entries on Twitter, it's amazingly easy to do, and you can find out for yourself by taking advantage of the free trial by going to squarespace.com forward slash candid frame. Sign up for a free account. No credit card is needed. Just try it out and start building your website today. Then if you decide to purchase it, use the offer code CANDIDFRAME5 and get 10% off your first purchase on new accounts, including monthly and annual plans. That's squarespace.com and use the offer code CANDIDFRAME5 everything you need to create an exceptional website. One of the things that you write in your book is don't let your dreams and aspirations control you. What's more important than making money is that your business increase, increases the quality of your life. And that's something that's really easy to lose sight of. I know when I, when I left my last real J-O-B, I was putting in like 12 or 15 hour days. And I think I did that for about a couple of years before I finally hit the wall. Part of it was that, you know, I, I didn't want to have to go back to what I'd done before. And I felt like I really needed to push myself. And it was only after I realized I just couldn't maintain that kind of momentum and keep my sanity and my health that I started making making changes. But that really spoke to me in terms of I could have easily got into a situation where I hated my boss and my boss was me. Mm. Yeah. You know, the quality of one's life, it, it does need, it is more important than how great it is to get a paycheck for, you know, making photographs for those that want to enjoy their creative work, leaving their J O B and, and hanging all of their hopes and dreams and expectations and retirement and vacations and medical expenses and, cars and all the things that, that life is made up of expensive things in reality, that's hanging a lot of expectations on what usually started out of passion and out of enjoyment. And so for those that are looking to do it more, their business isn't built on just being happier, making more photographs. 
it's it's a business decision. And so, yeah, as, as one gets more comfortable with the business elements of being of their own boss, and they get more comfortable with serving the needs of those around them that they know, the companies, the organizations, the, the people that they feel like they can connect with and make happier as a result of their work, then that can grow over time. So that the dealing with the, the day job and or part-time job and balancing that awkward balance of you know dividing one's time, a lot of people feel, a lot of creatives um, put themselves in a sort of a, a martyr-like scenario where they, they really hate their other job and they almost hate their, their creative work because both are extremely difficult to do. So, you know, often, I mean, there isn't one simple answer, but often it's, it's the question of, if, is the quality of your life actually there? And for those that are struggling, if they've gone out on their own and they're really struggling, I often encourage them to, you know, if it's a money thing, there's other ways to subsidize your emerging business. You know, it's called a job or it's called sell your car or it's called, you know, whatever you have to do. Um, but the quality of your life and how you're, the smile on your face, your passion for what you're doing, that is part of that brand. People want to be associated with happy, um, productive people. And if you're not happy and you're not productive, um, then you know, you're putting yourself behind the eight ball. I got to work with a lot of students who are at the beginning of their careers. So they're in their early 20s. They got no family. They, you know, they got no kids. They don't have a lot of overhead. And so they can end up taking you know, a lot of risk and, and making a lot of choices that people who are older, who already have those obligations, um, it's, it's not so easy. And I know that a lot of their listeners here are over the age of 30. One of the obstacles that a lot of them see in terms of making that choice is the fact that, look, I got a life. I, I have a family. I have a mortgage. I have all these things. And even though I want to do it, I don't know if I can do it. So do you think that it's the older you are, the more unlikely it is that you can make this make this leap? Or are there certain things that you feel like, okay, if you really want to do this, these are the things you have to think of, and this then these are the things that you need to do in order for it to be a, a viable life choice. Yeah, when when someone is in that situation where the the risks and liabilities of a lack of income or a significantly decreased income affect more than just themselves, that's where you know, um, though some, they may not be involved in the business, the the spouse or the family members or the dependents. Um, you know, they need to be involved in the process and they need to be inspired as well. And they need to understand the, the, the risks and, and costs and challenges that go on. And, and too often creatives in isolation make decisions about their creative endeavor or their future or what they're trying to accomplish. Uh, and they really isolate the people around them that uh, also want to celebrate them and, and, and be a part of their success, but that are dependent on it. So often, you know, it's, it's really about a uh, sharing the passion with those around them. And my caution here is that uh, too often the, the sole proprietor or freelancer will blurt out their ideas or their, you know, however grand to those that are closest to them, a spouse or a family member. And when those ideas aren't flushed out, man, that can stress family members out. You know, like they'll have a grand idea for a personal project that, you know, the, the spouse will kind of go, well, that sounds expensive. And how much time is that going to take? And and they don't quite understand it all. But if the if the photographer were to take a little extra time, map it out, maybe almost build, if you will, a proposal to kind of go, hey, uh, you know, this is what I'm thinking about. I really want to, you know, I'm really excited about this. And here's how I want to see it accomplished. And then kind of go, what do you think? Do you feel like this is worth my time away from the family? Or do you feel like there's something you want to contribute to this process or or what have you? And not doing it in isolation, I think, is a really big factor. But the reality is, is that mortgages and car payments and retirement plans don't respond well to the first few years of an emerging creative business. And it is a horrible risk. And for those that I know that have bridged that, like that have made that transition, They've done it by not watching television. <laughs> They've done it by, by seriously limiting the money that they spend on non-essential parts of life. You know, they, they've decreased what they do for, for fun in reality to serve and subsidize their creative endeavor. So it comes at uh, a cost. And if it isn't coming at a big enough cost, then making that transition won't go, it won't go very well. 
Yeah. And you, and that's an excellent point because I think that, you know, there are some successful business people slash photographers who either made the choice to do that, uh, to make the transition or were forced to because, you know, they lost your job, they, they lost their job and they made the, made the choice to make, to make the change. So it's, it's possible, but it's, it involves more than just dreaming out loud. You know, it, it involves a lot of work, like you just mentioned, in terms of making a, making a plan that you can, because if you can convince the spouse, the significant other, that it's, it's a good idea that you probably have gotten a lot of things, a lot of things right. I think it's, I think it's a valuable thing because I certainly have learned, learned how important it is to explain to my wife anytime I want to take on a new project or a new venture, why, why I want to do it and, and how it's not going to take away from the family in a variety of different ways. So that's, that's golden as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. When you see people who are going out there and they're, they're making this thing happen for themselves, what do you think are some of the, the major pitfalls that you've seen that people make sort of early on that you feel like, God, if I could just tell this person just to avoid this, that, that it would help. Uh, that's a great question. I definitely feel like creatives tend to hide behind their creative work. And what so rarely is, is understood that buyers are hiring you. Yes. Your creative works, you know, is the, is the end result that they're purchasing. But they're putting their trust in you and they're giving money to you, you know, fellow humanoid. And so when buyer goes to someone's website or looks at someone's collateral and they don't really get a sense of who the person is that made these things, I feel like that's, that's a big missed opportunity. And I don't know if, if emerging creatives understand the value of personality and of, of showing someone, showing your interest your interests and your character, your, your personality, your, you know, it's just who you are. Sometimes, you know what, <laughs> when I go to an about me page or an about us page or a contact page, and all I see is a, you know, fill in this email web, you know, form. I don't get a bio. I don't get a photograph of the photographer. I don't learn about what other stuff they're doing. I, I just, it's just static and bland and, and really almost, um, it, I feel like the person's put up a barrier. Um, I, I, I would want to shake that person and kind of let the buyer see and know you a little bit better. I, that definitely stands out uh, to me as, as one thing for sure. I also think from the uh, management side of things, the someone's uh, one's finances, it, it needs to not be so mysterious, <laughs> whether it's the shoebox of receipts that causes you stress at tax season, uh, or it's the, uh, you know, the, the, the frantic, like, oh my goodness, I'm so behind on my invoicing. You know, you've created a barrier for people to give you money uh, or the, the elements of one's finances need to not be mysterious because that stuff, the money stuff is what keeps people up at night. The money stuff is what causes you to have heart attacks and anxiety and, and the stress that are, become such a barrier to actually being creative and being inspired. So whether it's the you know, finding someone to help with bookkeeping or whether it's, you know, um, taking extra time to go to a class or do some tutorials on making sense of your FreshBooks account or do your, you know, using mint.com or whatever it is, just take the mystery out of the money stuff because that anxiety is just, you know, it, it wrecks relationships and it wrecks small businesses faster than failed work or, or uh, poor talent. <laughs> yeah. Well, one of the things that you uh, you make a point of emphasizing is the idea of scheduling your time. I think that's really important, whether or not you're an entrepreneur or not, just in terms of being a creative, in terms of making time to go out there and do the thing that you love. Because uh, as, as I learned early on, so much of my time was being spent just trying to sustain myself that I wasn't going out there and making the time to shoot. And I still struggle with that. That today, as I, you know, I'm trying out different things as, as, as revenue sources. But when I was reading that, I was like, yeah, you know, I don't have to necessarily have to be at this desk, uh, five days a week. Some days I may want to just collect all the sort of the business work on Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and have that Tuesday to just go out and do stuff that I want to do. Since I have the leisure of being able to take that time off and I don't have to get anything a day off, you know, signed off by my boss, I'm in control of that. 
I think that was a real valuable bit of information that, that I know I needed to hear. Yeah, batching work is so valuable to one's time. And we were talking earlier about, you know, wearing all those different hats. And there's so many hats that, you know, aren't that much fun to wear. Well, what if you batched all the work together that you hated doing and you had like crappy Tuesday and you just dedicated Tuesday to all the garbage stuff that you know you hate doing, but, you know, you've found ways to hide candy around your house or you've decided to, you know, treat yourself to a lunch out that day, you know, to right in the middle of your crappy work day or whatever it is. But, you know, batching things together so that you can, whether it's running errands or whether it's meetings or whether it's, you know, doing a bunch of editing in a row, whatever it is, batching stuff together makes sense because it's transition time that actually is your biggest time suck. As I think as a creative person, it's switching from project to project or from task to task uh, or, you know, your energies are not the same for doing bookkeeping as they are for editing a photograph as they are to emailing a prospect, um, as they are to, you know, running out and meeting someone for coffee that might want to work with you down the road. So, you know, putting things together that make the most sense and not being a victim to your schedule, but actually looking, hey, in a week, you know, next week, this is how I want my week to look. And in iCal or Outlook or whatever it is, I'm going to build, an, you know, a structure for that week. And I, I know people like to, some people like to really overschedule and have a lot of reoccurring events. I have found more creatives, uh, I've found that creatives tend to ignore reoccurring events in their calendar. So just take one week at a time, schedule it out, batch some things together so that you've created some empty space for one's own creative work. You've created some empty space for maybe a project that isn't quite flushed out yet and you need some time to percolate on it. Block that out. That That's part of your job as a creative person is to make sure you're being inspired and creative, and that's not easy to do sometimes on a Wednesday from two until four thirty. But that's your job. You're that's what an entrepreneur has to do. And if you can schedule that and find ways to make that exciting, then I think one schedule can be a little bit more rewarding. One of the things that I thought was really poignant was the idea of making money while you while you sleep, and that's a that's a, that's a term that's been used by by other people as well. But I think it's it's an important point of discussion because I think a lot of photographers feel like, well, if I'm not out there shooting, if I'm not in front of the computer, then I'm not making money. And the unfortunate result of a business model based on that, that if you get sick, you're not making a dime. And, and it's important to think of revenue streams that allow you to make money, even if you're not directly involved in working, either you know producing pictures or, or doing things along those lines. That's something that a lot of photographers don't learn until late in the game sometimes. So when people are starting off and making a plan, what do you think are some of the things they need to start thinking of from the get-go to, to plan for that? Because obviously when you're just starting off, you may not have anything that can provide you a steady revenue stream when you're not directly working. But what are some of the considerations that you need to start making from the get-go so that you can lay out the foundation for that to happen? Yeah, I think... There's two things that stand out to me in, in the photographer's world uh, to answer that question. One is image uh, licensing and image rights. And so often the, the young or the emerging photographer right now is so accustomed to the, uh, you know, handing off every single image they shot to the client, just sort of here's the pile of, you know, images on a disc or, you know, here's the link to download all the files. They kind of give away the farm and they give it away for some small number, like $300, you know, there was a great shoot. Here's all your work, uh, everything that you've paid for. And they've missed the opportunity to kind of uh, hold back and deliver, you know, the, the, the best quality, you know, the selected images, the edited images that you can put your name behind and kind of say, hey, if you need other stuff, let's, you know, come back to me and, and uh, happy to help, happy to edit them, happy to make them fit whatever you're looking to make them uh, work with. Um, and that comes at a little extra cost. So, You've already done that initial work, but it can at least help you down the road. Or, uh, you know, there's lots of ways that image licensing and, and image rights sort of work into the pricing structure. That's the, you know, very one small example. But I find that uh, new photographers are just giving away the farm without even considering the other options of delivering images down the road or in other ways. So I feel like that's an important um, element that should get wrestled with. The second thing is productizing. And no, 
uh, I agree with you, an emerging photographer shouldn't be, you know, right out of the gate, you know, be looking at what kind of products that they can create. But I think they should scheme and strategize and, and, you know, be jealous of other people's products that they like and find ways to make something tangible uh, or even if it's a tangible, I mean, in a physical form or a digital form, something that can exist on their website or other distribution models like, uh, you know, uh, ebook stores or uh, Apple, or like iTunes or um, in Etsy or you, you, um, you name it, just find other ways to distribute, whether it's, uh, I know ebooks are very common. I've been so cautious about, you know, everyone seems to want to get into the ebook game right now. And of course, everyone, you know, can. And there's very few barriers to doing that. But now that ebooks are so prolific, there's just so many of them, you know, good ebooks are, you know, are the ones that get bought. And good ebooks are the ones that go viral and actually generate sales that are worth the production. Um, so I'm, I, I want to say that, you know, ebooks are not the only way to do it. But, um, you know, I've seen photographers making, you know, things that they turn their images into products that they put on an Etsy store and it's buttons, pins, it's book covers, it's um, things for, you know, people's life that they can enjoy, journals, whatever it be. And they've taken their photography and they've done something with it that means that someone can buy it while that person is sleeping, literally. And so I think productizing has its place. It's not for every type of creative um, but it definitely is, is is an option that they can they should pursue. So when someone's starting their business, I think they should start asking themselves, what are the other ways that I can uh, take my creative work and make it available to people? Ways that I want to do that. Now, the margin on selling a button on Etsy isn't very good. Um, but if the five people that bought that button last year um, really love their button, you can then follow up with those buyers and you do a blog post about them and their button or you've done something else that that button buyer goes, hey, I love my button. Now I'm going to buy your print or now I'm going to buy your journal or what have you. And you can build it again. It's long game, uh, but it gets people excited about what it is that you're making. Well, you know, you work with a lot of creatives. You work, you know, uh, with, with David Dushman a lot. But, you know, for you, in terms of the work that you do for work, you know, that you do for David and, and other creatives, for, for you, what do you like most? about your role in these photographers' businesses and, and, and their lives? I love seeing creative people freed up to be more creative. You know, and ultimately, the, the people that I'm working with, I'm either taking on, you know, however, you know, however they can afford me or, or whatever the scope of work is, is best suited for. Um, when I get to take on aspects of their business so that they're freed up to be more creative, to spend more time with the people they want to spend time with and do the things that they're most passionate about doing, I really enjoy watching that transformation. And when creative people are creating, that's when they're happiest. And so I like to contribute to that. And sometimes that means that I'm going through their bookkeeping. Sometimes that means I'm reading their contracts and, and, and I'm dealing with their, you know, disgruntled clients uh, as a first line of first defense. But the reality is, is that I do those things because watching creative people be happy is nothing better for me. Yeah. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend and suggest another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore on their own. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that photographer be and why? Great question. I would have to say Nick Hall from Seattle. He is brilliant. I love, I love looking at Nick's work. And tell me a little bit about, about his work. What, what kind of work does he do? Nick seems to have a portfolio that's full of just such um, grand spaces and color. And, uh, and I, I'm, I, because I'm not a photographer, I couldn't tell you much more than that. He, just, uh, he has an, an aesthetic that, that inspires me to be outside and to be active and to enjoy the earth. And it's so often, you know, you stare at your computer long enough and you realize that there's a real world out there. And, uh, and Nick makes me want to get outside. Well, I look forward to checking out his work. So where can people go to find out about the, the books that you've written and, and everything that you're doing? 
Yeah, people can track me down on my website, which is corwinhebert.com. And for those that are looking for business advice, marketing advice specific to their role, their job, their creative uh, endeavor, the best way to get that advice out of me, to suck me dry, if you will, is to sign up for my tiny letter. So right on my website, there's a tagline that says, I don't blog, I deliver. And you click the word I deliver and you sign up for my tiny letter. And uh, once every few weeks, I send out a Uh, an email newsletter that sort of gives some tips and ideas and insights on growing your creative business. And anyone who hits reply to that tiny letter, I respond to. So people ask me questions about, like you kind of, some of the questions you've asked me, right? They ask me questions about their, their, their business, their marketing, their pricing, or their, their, customers or their websites or whatever issue they're struggling with, uh, you know, and if, if my tiny letter readers keep their question brief and it's a tangible, you know, something that I can jump in and, and help with, I love to do whatever I can to help. So that's the way people get a hold of me. Of course, they can also hire me, but <laughs> that's, uh, you know, we'll leave that for another day. And why don't you share information on the books? I'll, I'll have links on for, uh, for both of them on the website, but why don't you mention them briefly? Yeah, Living the Dream, Putting Your Creativity to Work and Getting Paid is a print book out by Peach Pit uh, Pearson Publishing, and that's available on Amazon or in the Peach Pit store. And uh, it's in most bookstores, so uh, most people have been telling me they've been able to find the book uh, at their local bookstore, so that's great. The uh, My ebooks, uh, I have three ebooks on craft and vision. My most recent ebook is called Growing the Vision Monger 2. It's a uh, kick-ass guide for the photographic entrepreneur. And I also have one ebook on flat books on Trey Radcliffe's flat books. And the ebook is called Crowd Control, and it's growing your creative work um, through uh, humanoids. So, talking about networking and running events and doing the things that get people interacting with you as, a, as an actual human. Well, Corwin, thank you so much. I really had a, it was a pleasure talking with you. It was great to connect. Thanks so much. The Candid Frame is supported by donations from people just like you. You can help support the work we do here by visiting the website at thecandidframe.com and contributing using PayPal. You can also support the show by writing a review in the iTunes Music Store or by adding a link to the podcast on your website or blog. The editor for this show is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. Music is by Kevin McLeod. And this is Ibarian X, and this is the candid frame.